Welcome back to Faith Angle. At the heart of this project has been a series of semi-annual conferences linking together mainstream journalists with top religion scholars or clerics over a series of in-depth conversations about the heart of the connection between religion and public life. And we're just back from Miami, where last week we convened 18 journalists and five speakers for this time a series of in-depth conversations focused on faith in global poverty, mental health, and race in America. We did so to address an enduring disconnect. By the time I was coming into journalism, a newsroom was one of the most secular places in America. It was like the faculty lounge at a, you know, elite university. But our readers were not secular. And and people our readers are religious. And so our re- you know, astute people in the news business realize especially when the internet came and everything began challenged, our business model was challenged. But our journalism model had problems, too. And one of them was we were much more secular than the people we were writing about. That was Carl Cannon, executive editor of Real Clear Politics. Here's a clip from our opening session with Gary Haugen, president of the International Justice Mission, who for three decades has seen up close how security gaps between the rich and majority poor prevent criminal justice systems from working and perpetuate injustice. In the developing world, Private security forces are between five and seven times larger than the public police force. The largest employer on the continent of Africa now is private security. This suddenly makes us understand, oh, this is how this all stays below the radar and doesn't get better because the people of wealth and power have abandoned the public system. It's sort of what happens to schools or transportation systems when the people of wealth and influence leave the public system. They don't even know that it's broken. They don't even know that it's not. This is a massively underreported and under-discussed phenomenon of the last 50 years where advanced economies in the developing world, I mean, in the Western world, business invested in public institutions of criminal justice. In the developing world, that was not the historical arc. It was actually an investment in private security. So there's two tiers, a collection of people who can afford to move forward economically because they're safe in private security, then all those who cannot afford private security who are living in lawless chaos. After the session, we talked with a pair of journalists, Kelsey Dallas of the Deseret News and Nap Nasworth of the Christian Post, who commented on what they heard. Basically everything uh, Gary was saying about how an effort to add education opportunities to address sanitation issues, those matter. And it's not like we should rip the funding away for that. It's just that you have to see the bigger picture and say, are we wasting resources or misdirecting them because it was entering a corrupt society or a leader is not happy to work with us and things. So I, it was a very clear-eyed vision of that poverty eradication effort that just helps me orient the reporting I do on religious freedom efforts and think of that in new ways and ask better questions moving forward. He is on the cutting edge of so much important work within global poverty. And, but then the challenge for journalists is, how do you write that in a way that people want to read it? You know, journalism today, since it's all internet-based, we get feedback immediately on how well an article is doing. And if, if it's not an article that interests readers, you know, it's not getting the traffic that you want it to, then all of a sudden it's going to be going further down the page, even though it could be incredibly important. You know, that's just sort of the way that journalism works today. So the challenge for journalists is to, you know, it's their job to sit in there and listen to what Gary is saying and to be able to write it in a way that's going to connect with readers. That's the, you know, the important challenge for 
what we do. Our second session focused on faith and mental health and paired together psychiatrist Kurt Thompson with journalist Anna Marie Cox. It was an unusual blend of intellectual rigor and moving personal story. Here's a clip from Anna Marie's deeply personal presentation about her own journey through addiction and recovery. I always thought of myself as broken, and my journey of recovery was, first of all, kind of realizing that the thing that I thought of as broken inside me was a disease and not my fault. And the other step was believing, not that I was broken, but that I was made, that I was made in a particular way. And all I had to do was be that, and that would be enough. One of the hallmarks of Faith Angle is the extended Q&A dialogue that takes place between journalists and experts. And here's an excerpt from one exchange between Mike Gerson of The Washington Post and Kurt Thompson. If community is so valuable from an evolutionary perspective and isolation is so damaging, and we know this, why do some of us flee from community? The brain hates being alone, but at the same time, because of some of our insecure attachment patterns, and those develop often in traumatic situations, because of those patterns, the very thing that I need, intimacy, in order for me to flourish, is the very thing I'm the most terrified of. And so in order for me to actually get to the point where I can know that I'm okay because someone else is with me and that's the only way that I'm gonna be okay, is if I have enough practice crossing thresholds where I'm actually terrified of you knowing things about me because if I reveal this next thing to you, surely you're gonna leave. But if I reveal one thing and you don't, then I might reveal something else and then I might reveal something else and before you know it, there are parts about me that I hate the most and therefore have not told anyone that I'm now telling you, and perhaps I'm telling a number of people. And when that happens, what we're saying is the part about, this, this gets back to the whole notion, Gary, about justice. The part about me that is the least defended, the least valuable, the part that I wouldn't want anybody to see that I don't pay any attention to, but is creating all kinds of problems for me, finally gets attention. It is finally seen. It is finally known. And literally, the neurobiological energy that I have bound up in protecting that and keeping that cordoned off from anybody else is now made available for me to serve. It's made available for me to do for others what I heretofore would not be able to do. Will Salatin of Slate Magazine asked a fascinating question about having sufficient power to choose a better way. He contrasted that with Anna's description of powerlessness, her bottoming out before opening up to a different path. Both Anna and Kurt comment. For me, you know, I had this experience of, of waking up in the ER where I was like, okay, not me, right? There's something bigger than me. But it turns out that that's a way that a lot of people kind of like, you know, sort of start to, uh, on the slope to, to being able to accept powerlessness is it really just not me. And like for people that are, and that's why the, the you know, hitting bottom is so important is because you, that is what, bottom is when you realize nothing works. Bottom is when you realize I have tried everything and my power, my big brain, like cannot crack this one. So there's got to be some other way to do it. The notion of vulnerability, of course, is something that our culture 
like, this is not a very sexy thing. It's not a very helpful thing. But to open oneself in vulnerability is to allow others to hear that story. Again, getting back to the, like, if I'm telling you about the parts of me that I hate the most, in many respects is saying, if I am powerless, I'm acknowledging, I'm using my agency to acknowledge that I don't feel like I have much agency. But if I'm doing that you know, in, in a room by myself where nobody hears me, my brain doesn't have the same experience as it does if I'm doing it in a room where my right hemisphere witnesses your acknowledgement of what I'm feeling by what I witness. And the very act of me being vulnerable, only to have that vulnerability caught by someone else, literally changes the nature of my felt sense of vulnerability and the neural network movement between my right and my left hemisphere in that very moment. Here's what a couple of journalists thought of that session. First, Will Salatin, and then Emily McFarlane Miller of Religion News Service. I mean, we just sat through a Faith Angle session about addiction and recovery and neurobiology in which the word shame was repeatedly invoked by one of the speakers, Kurt Thompson, as a fundamental mechanism of destructiveness in relationships and in personal, mental, emotional, spiritual health. Shame is a word that most of the people I work with associate with religion. And what this session would illuminate for people, and hopefully through Faith Angle can illuminate for people in my subset of the media, is religion is not necessarily what you think it is. It is more diverse, it is more complicated. I'm hearing more and more a lot of journalists having conversations about how do you care for your mental health while doing this job? Partly because of the role of social media. You know, you come in contact with trolls, you come in contact with shooting videos that scroll past and play automatically, the 24-hour nature of news, the, the nature of the stories that you cover. So I thought it was really interesting to hear the perspective of a journalist talking about how they care for their mental health and from a professional. Our final session looked directly at race in America and gathered together the expertise of Dr. A.R. Bernard, and New York City pastor Dimas Salaberrios. Prior to the session, we screened an advanced showing of the film Emmanuel, a forthcoming documentary about the AME Church in Charleston, which lost nine members in 2015. Here's a clip from the Q&A with Dr. Bernard about what a reckoning around race in America might actually look like, and the importance of one concept in particular. Forgiveness is, is not a feeling. If we're waiting to feel forgiveness, that's not going to happen. Forgiveness, like love, is centered in the will, not the emotions. It is, it is a decision that, that we make to do something about what we're facing and to somehow move forward and somehow gain a release from the past. If you notice in the film, the moment of forgiveness was not planned, whether it was by the baseball player or whether it was by those who stood in the court, you know, the family members uh, of, of the victims. Something inside of them caused them to feel that courage, that moral courage, that integrity, that strength of character to say, you know what? I forgive you. Forgiveness cannot be earned. It cannot be demanded. It cannot be bought or sold. It, it's a gift that emanates from, we believe in our Christian context, love of God and love of neighbor. It's something that, that happens in that moment of time and you wonder, gosh, what, what did I just say? What did I just do? It's transcendent. 
So it, it's not a feeling. Uh, it's, it's not pretending that, that, that you're not hurt. We're not walking around with a painted smile. It is a recognition of, of the betrayal of trust, of hurt, of damage caused to the soul of the individuals involved and the nation, the culture as a, as a whole. Uh, and it, it's okay to recognize those feelings, those hurts that are instigated, instigated by someone's, you know, behavior, someone else's behavior. So it's not pretending that we're, we're not hurt. Forgiveness is not condoning the actions of the offender as though if I forgive, I'm somehow going to let them off the hook and people hesitate to forgive because they feel that, you know, the, the offender is going to get away with, with wrongdoing if, if I forgive. It is recognition that there's a consequence, that there's still a debt to be paid in spite of, of, of this forgiveness. Forgiveness is not continuing to trust the offender and stay in an abusive relationship that will continue after the fact, whether it's uh, between two persons or, or in relationship with a nation and a society, such as African-American with, with American society. It's not relieving the person of responsibility, their, their personal responsibility for, for, for their actions. But what it is, and I think what, what was powerful about the film, forgiveness is a surrender of the need to retaliate. Forgiveness, it's the power to reorder the relationship towards peace. And that takes courage, moral courage. It takes integrity. It takes strength of character to do something like that. But it's a powerful thing because they reordered the whole relationship between the victims and Dylan Roof, between the public and Dylan Roof, because as you said, you know, that, that moment of forgiveness was like, a, like motor oil, <laughs> you know, reducing the, the, the tension and the heat from the friction of, of, of human relationships, because it was like it let out a, a torrential rain on the fuse linked to the powder keg of emotion in American society that was ready to erupt and explode. But that moment of forgiveness, it did something. It put everybody on hold, on freeze. What just happened? And even those who wanted to instigate, they couldn't because it, they knew it wouldn't be recognized, it wouldn't be legitimate in the face of that transcendent act. Dr. Bernard's reflection on forgiveness came in response to a question raised by John Ward, senior political correspondent for Yahoo News. And after getting back to D.C., John dropped by the other day to talk about some of the things he's learned from Faith Angle. John is the author of the book Camelot's End, about the epic clash between Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy in 1980, also the host of an excellent podcast, The Long Game. Hey, John, thanks for dropping by. Welcome back from a trip earlier this week. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Quickly back into the flow here in Washington, but yeah. It was a great time. We saw you put a podcast out this morning. You guys have the best name uh -huh. of any podcast I can. How'd you come up with that name, by the way? Well, it, long story. It's about institutions. It's about long-term thinking. And I spent a couple months, like two years ago, thinking about what the heck an institution even is. I think during that process, I probably just sort of came up with the name. But it's, you know, I have a sports background. It's kind of out of that world as well. I remember walking around a field in Wisconsin near the place I was working at the time and listening to that 
when it first popped. And oh, really? Being very appreciative of your uh, thinking. That's cool. You've all yeah. you brought your on a few times. Yeah, you've all has yeah. been. You've all has been sort of a, an anchor of my thinking on a lot of this stuff. And I actually told one of the people at the Faith Angle Conference this week was A.R. Bernard, pastor from New York. And I passed him a note afterwards. He said something that connected with the book that Yuval's working on right now, which is, I think, coming out this fall, right? And Yuval's book that's coming out this fall is called A Time to Build. And I've read three or four chapters of it so far. And I feel like that book is going to be really, really seminal in some ways and a really important book. But I passed Pastor Bernard a note that told him about the book, but also said, hey, by the way, Yuval does happen to work for the group that is putting this conference on, but that's not why I'm telling you about this book. That's just a coincidence. It really is a great book. But yeah, Yuval's been great, and I'll have him back on definitely when his book is about to come out. Mm -hmm. I know Jamie Weinstein has that wonderful podcast, and he always asks guests, you know, are there people that you always read? I just wonder if he's one like that. You know, he's done it. You've all, absolutely. And in fact, I was having lunch with Jonathan Rausch from Brookings recently, who is kind of another anchor for me Mm -hmm. in some of this thinking. He's been more on the political side of thinking about institutions. But we were at lunch recently, and Jonathan had this amazing metaphor. He said, basically, I'm just a vampire glomming on to Yuval to like take out his wisdom and maybe make it practical in some ways. And yeah, Yuval is an important voice right now. Well, I love his voice because he tries in his writing, it seems to me, to draw on sort of a appealing, dual-sided, post-fracture, tribal age that we live in, you know? Absolutely, yeah. So we tried to do something yeah. similar with this forum, and I'd just be curious to ask him yeah. a couple days back. Any surprises from being there? Any sort of big aha takeaways? We'd love to talk about a couple of individual sessions. Gosh, I don't know if there were any surprises. Let me think. No, I wouldn't say there was any huge surprises. All the sessions had their own flavor. I think if anything kind of was surprising at all, it was that I had some instincts about how the session on international aid, I had some instincts about the questions underneath that were kind of lingering in some people's minds about that. The question being, is there a way in which a focus on international missions among conservative white evangelicals might be consciously or unconsciously a way of avoiding tougher issues at home regarding injustice. That was something that I knew instinctively was going to be on the minds of many readers, many people that I know of, talk to, read, listen to in that space. So I tried to push Gary Hogan from International Justice Mission on that. And I guess if there was anything, it wasn't a huge surprise. It was more confirming of my sense that this was an issue, that there were other journalists in the group there that asked similar questions. And I think what was maybe a little surprising was that when I got back, I kind of looked at my Twitter feed, I guess. I don't remember where I saw I think I saw it on Twitter. Turns out there was a conference in Dallas of evangelical women aimed at racial reconciliation, but they had a woman named Akemeni Uwan, or I can't remember how to pronounce her last name, but she's part of three women who do a podcast called Truth's Table. And she gave a talk there that was pretty confrontational on race. And the organizers of the conference actually took the video off of YouTube and have not handled that issue great, I would say. And so Akemeni is now kind of going after them on Twitter. And so there was a write-up of Akemeni's appearance by an attendee. It was really interesting because the write-up mentioned that there was a person from IJM at this conference. Hmm. And this woman, who's a woman of color, 
said that the, I think it was a largely white audience and the woman of color who was writing about this said when the person from IJM who's focused on international missions got up, there was a lot of applause and support, but the writer didn't feel that that support carried over to issues of racial injustice here in the US. Mm -hmm. So that was very kind of confirming of some of the things that myself and others were trying to talk to Gary about, which yes. he addressed to some extent. Yeah, that theme really arose and appreciated your piece yesterday to Yahoo News about that sort of generational divide yeah. that you see in the foreground now and describing that. It was interesting to me too, you know, Mike wrote a piece, Gerson, yeah. uh, who was also with us earlier in the week about IJM's work. And for him, it was about foreign aid and what he had seen when he had been part of the administration and sort of ways of thinking about aid overseas and faith-based groups versus others and what's at stake and changes yeah. there. It's, we all bring a lens, you know. Well, uh, there's no question IJM is doing incredible work. And when you think about these issues of poverty and injustice here in the U.S., if you're looking for somebody who doesn't have credibility on those issues, Gary is the wrong person to look to. I mean, he's worked on anti-apartheid efforts in South Africa. He worked with Bishop Tutu. He has worked on police injustice or police brutality, I'm sorry, as an attorney, the Justice Department in the 90s under the Clinton administration, who was, uh, I believe, a lead investigator for the UN into the Rwandan genocide. Very weighty stuff. And two of those three issues I just mentioned, you know, have clear racial injustice angles to them, one of them dealing with things here in the U.S. So IJM's doing great work. Gary is an incredibly impressive guy. And yeah, I mean, hmm. when he was talking, I did get the sense that he felt like he had to be careful about how he talked about some things. I don't know why, but, you know, his comment about the generational divide in evangelicalism was very telling, very insightful, and I think pretty forthcoming. You know, he said that older, more conservative evangelicals, white evangelicals, have a different view because they come from a background, many of them. I think this is the key thing that I didn't even get into in the Yahoo piece. They come from a background. I believe A.R. Bernard used the word hermeneutic, but you know, it's a worldview based in their view of what the Bible says, how to read the Bible, what their theology is, and a culture of evangelicalism. These people are coming from a world in which they were very suspicious of anything having to do with social justice, fighting injustice, and there's a lot of reasons for that that Gary went into in his session that I thought was really interesting. And, you know, as he put it, the lids have come off of a lot of these things, and the younger evangelicals don't have those same constraints. They're much more forward-leaning on social justice. But Gary pointed out, younger evangelicals who are more progressive on these issues and more progressive on politics do not have a lot of the money and influence in evangelical philanthropy. Mm -hmm. So that was a very interesting comment, I thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agree very much, yeah. What's that phrase, the wrong answer to the right question that's been thrown around about something I heard recently? And thinking about that quest, tie that together, John, if you would, a little bit. Gary's presentation on global poverty and functional criminal justice systems abroad yeah. with the race conversation, because you, of course, were the one in part who nudged the Charleston conversation. Yeah, and I think there is a connection, too, between even Gary's core comments, because his core comments were about how the poor internationally, one of the things that they're most vulnerable to is defective or corrupt law enforcement. And so they're much more vulnerable to violence and to crime. And he talked about how the wealthy in some of these countries have divested themselves, removed themselves from the criminal justice system. Private security. And they just pay for private security. And the key word or idea there is proximity. They don't have proximity to the experience of the poor because they're in a totally separate criminal justice law enforcement system. And so they really don't even have any clue what the poor are dealing with. Proximity is something that 
we in the U.S. deal with, lack of proximity to the poor and to the marginalized. And it's these issues of separating ourselves from them that I think often leads to a lack of sensitivity and urgency for dealing with issues of poverty and marginalization and injustice here in the U.S. And so when we talked about Charleston and race here in the U.S., Pastor Bernard was an incredibly interesting guy. He made some very strong statements on race, but it was clear that in his ministry, in his daily communications, his daily messaging, he's not in the same position as somebody like Akemeni, who I mentioned earlier. I think he's a little older, and I think he has more constituencies that he's dealing with, whether that's in a national audience, I think he has a show on Sirius, or in his congregation. But he's definitely, his daily messaging, his regular core focus on what he says is not as hard-edged as somebody like Akemeni. Akemeni, interestingly, says that one of her core ministries or core callings or whatever you want to say is anti-racism ministry. That's actually a phrase that I heard used for her. Pastor Bernard is somebody who's, I think, sees his role as a little broader than that. We didn't get into what that was, but you know, he said things like America was established on white supremacy, bottom line period. But he also talked about trying to talk to the African-American community about forgiveness and avoiding bitterness. That's a very, very delicate issue to talk about because I think you get into what some people would call victim blaming or, or putting the onus on people who shouldn't have the onus on them. But he was very clear. You should only be talking about forgiveness and avoiding bitterness if you have credibility with the community you're talking to. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that's going to be a leader of color. So mm-hmm. and it um, helps to be a pastor of a 45,000 member church and to have had the story he's had formerly member of the Nation of Islam. Yeah, fascinating People coming to him, I noticed, you know, both the last two mayoral administrations in New York City have asked him to help with transition, to help with sort of implementation of some of the initiatives that they're working on. And that says a lot when instead of the pastor going to the politician and asking for access, instead to have politicians coming to you because your voice really matters in the community. Yeah, and I didn't know much about Pastor Bernard before this conference. So that's one of the things that the conference is good for is to introduce you up close and personal to guys like him. And turns out he was on President Trump's board of advisor, advisory council of evangelical leaders. I think he made a little bit of news at the conference by talking about, I could be wrong. He may have said this before, but I didn't know this, that he basically said the advisory council was quite informal and not in any way a formal thing. And that the White House basically announced this council without telling him that they were going to do so. And that was the point at which he began to feel like it was harder for him to stay on the council, which led up to him leaving the body after Trump's comments about the events in Charlottesville where white supremacists rallied there. And there was the car attack, the terrorist attack by one of them. Mm-hmm. So that, that, was interesting. Interesting. The that was interesting. Christian Post ran, ran a piece this morning. Yeah. One of the attendees who was part of that conversation pushed that out and around a little bit, noticed the same thing. And, and was that their news angle that basically the White House sprung this announcement? I think him? so. It was a yeah. tacit part of the piece. It was a yeah. larger piece about his yeah. decision to ultimately sort of step back and why morally he felt that was a good thing and at that time right. to, to do. But so, that goes to his temperament too. I mean, obviously his willingness to get on, he explained his conversations with other people who felt like he shouldn't be there. It's part of his temperament to be somebody who is willing to go places that get him some flack from his own constituency. And, I, you know, I think that's admirable. Mm-hmm. In the film, a number of journalists watched the night before he spoke, Dr. Bernard had a very precise way of talking about forgiveness, what it is and yeah. what it is not, of course, with the story of the Emmanuel Amy Church and the killing of nine parishioners back in 2015. The takeaway for me was that it was not over much. His description of what forgiveness is was very clear and precise. And 
pastoral and experienced and rooted in a long lifetime, I suppose. But I don't know if you do you have any other takeaways on sort of the, the sort of forgiveness angle of that session? Well, again, I mean, I think when you talk about forgiveness, you're immediately in that context of the Charleston massacre, you're immediately on very, very delicate, complicated ground because it's great that they extended forgiveness. But there is a potential for people who don't want to deal with systemic issues of race Mm -hmm. to point to that and say, that's how black people should respond to stuff like that. And Pastor Bernard was incredibly, I think, explicit in saying forgiveness cannot be demanded Mm -hmm. and it does not preclude consequences. It's funny, you know, Mike Gerson wrote a piece today, hopefully it'll still be a couple days old at the time that you're hearing this in your earbuds, but about race and about Mm -hmm. reconciliation. And it was a very serious call, somber-minded call to institutional implications of racism in our country and thinking seriously about it. I was so grateful that that very skilled writer chose to leave a conversation about forgiveness in a film that we showed leaning into institutional and structural application. Yeah. And look, I know there will be people who listen to this conversation people of my skin color, white people, and are probably bothered by even some of the things I'm saying and the ways I'm saying them. And I think I understand a lot of that perspective. I have people in my own family who I think would probably be bothered by this conversation. But I think one of the things I kind of kept coming back to in some of my questions to Gary, to Pastor Bernard in particular, was what do you think are some things that the country can do to have a conversation about our past in a way that brings healing, that moves us forward. I was in a three-way conversation at one point and another person made a comment to the effect of, okay, so you're forward-looking, not backward-looking. And I kind of jumped in and I said, well, no, I mean, to be forward-looking, to move forward, you do have to look back. I don't think the country has really reckoned with the ways that systemic issues still reverberate into the present. And, you know, Pastor Bernard himself said, you cannot heal a wound by saying it's not there. Nihilism is when you deny a reality to avoid an uncomfortable truth. And I know, just to kind of wrap this point up, I know there are many people who feel like race is used as like a wedge. Democrats use it as a political issue for their own purposes. I would just say, I think in my experience, I've seen that even if that may be the case for some people, I think there's, first of all, legitimate issues we need to deal with. And there are people of good faith who I know want to help the country move forward. I would just point to somebody like Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. If I could recommend any one book on this whole issue, probably to start with, it would be Just Mercy, where he talks about his work helping people on death row in the Deep South who are unjustly imprisoned. and I think I remember you and Jamar Tisby talking about that on your podcast, or maybe it was him, yeah. I can't no, remember. I think he probably brought him up. Uh-huh. You know, Brian comes from a faith background. He's a Christian, uh-huh. and he's not out to get anybody. He's out to help the country move forward on mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. Perhaps that's a nice segue to talking about the session that was right in the heart of the conference this time between Gary on global poverty and Dr. Bernard and Dimas on Charleston and race and the country more broadly was a conversation that was very intense and instructive. We had sort of a neuroscience psychiatrist background, and then we had Anna Cox talking about her story in a very transparent and vulnerable way. I think a lot about that idea of what Kurt was basically saying about being known. If you're the journalist, you get to ask all the questions, so you're in charge, right? And if you're the interviewee, then, you know, you're out there and they can ask you anything. And so it's a two-way. 
And I think a lot about that with podcasts because I used to be kind of in a little bit more remote area when your podcast first popped, John, and it was cool to sort of listen in to these conversations and, oh, yeah, I miss that, you know, the mm. joy of the sort of DC beltways got all this. Mm. And we all long to be engaged, to know and be known, to love and be loved, be in a in relational setting. That's where the life of life is, right? And so that conversation, I thought, was the highlight of the conference. I really appreciated honest thing at one point. I think I remember my friend John Ward telling me about this back when I was in the place of growing. But just reflect, if you would, on that middle session. Solving racial reconciliation is too large a, a missive for any forum but going personal and leaning into one person's story and thinking about some of the themes Kurt was raising is a little bit more personal. I'm also the son of a counselor, so I get to, you know, yeah. I'm the yeah, yeah. Of that part. But what did you think of that middle session? Was it out of place? Was it okay? No. I think if you were to have three sessions that were all of that ilk, I think it would be harder for journalists to come. Journalists need sessions that deal with hard issues that have news elements, news angles to them. And I think that's part of the value of Faith Angle is bringing people in that represent institutions that are involved on hard issues. I mean, the Faith Angle Forum can be in some ways sort of a stress test for some of these people to come in and face tough questioning in that sense. And if they emerge from it intact, I think it helps them as long as people haven't pulled their punches, right? But yeah, the middle session I thought was great. I've been friends with Anna for years and I've gotten to know Kurt a little bit over the last year, I think. And Kurt's core expertise and mission is really compelling and powerful. It's about the relationships. You know, he deals with a lot of neuroscience and it's about the relationships between our brain and our heart and soul. And then the relationships between our brains and each other. I mean, it's fascinating. And it's kind of hits you every time I've heard him talk now on this and I've read parts of his book on shame. And the two or three times that I've heard him talk, it's a very moving experience in ways that are hard to describe. And so I did enjoy that a lot. I enjoy his expertise. And then Anna's was a very moving first-person account of her history of addiction, substance abuse, and mental illness. And she talked about the connections between mental illness and addiction and the ways in which addiction itself can be a form of mental illness. And it was interesting because I had just interviewed Congressman Joe Kennedy III on my podcast, and we talked at length about mental illness. So that was kind of fresh in my mind. Kennedy's working on mental illness legislation or mental health legislation. And yeah, Anna made a comment about some conversations that she and I had had when she was going through her spiritual awakening and coming to faith as a Christian. I joked with her afterwards that the quote she attributed to me might have been sort of gussied up in her mind. I mean, I don't remember saying anything as articulate as what she remembers, but I'm glad that she remembers it that way. I probably should have put it on the record, but I failed to do that. Very nice. I liked Will Salatin's question about Will power. is one of the best question uh, askers I've seen. Yes, so, so gifted. And, you know, I wondered, his question was about, if I remember correctly, the dynamic of power and actively being able to make change, but also the importance of the power dynamic often at play in a lot of our relationships. And it's, it's interesting to consider that in the context of journalism. You get the interview with somebody, then yours for that 45 minutes. You've interviewed a lot of people for, I know, your work. And there are people in our amazing city who, because they're in Congress, you can control many things about your schedule and listening dynamic. And you're always the one giving. You're never the one listening. You can do a lot of things. You can do that in philanthropy, certainly as well. And you think about that sort of, I suppose it's technically possible in situations of pastoral ministry. And Absolutely. And, yeah. So reflect, if you would, at all on that power dynamic. We, we get away for Faith Angle. You get big space to think big a little bit, and then you go back to work. And that's part of the rhythm of the project. But yeah. any thoughts on that? 
Well, I commend your instinct on that. I mean, I think that's something I've tried to work through in journalism. You alluded to that fact that journalists often ask the questions and can kind of keep themselves guarded in that. And I've been aware of that for several years and have tried to avoid just simply having no skin in the game. And that can mean different things at different times. But I think it's important for journalists to at least, at the very least, consider that the people that they're writing about oftentimes, whether it's politicians or whoever, for me, it's often politicians, the people they're writing about are real people. And when you're covering a person running for office, they're vulnerable. They're putting themselves out there. That's something that I think we need to keep in mind. It shouldn't cause us not to hold them accountable or whatever, but I think it's part of the job. If I were to ask you a question, though, I think, which is where you were going about Faith Angle, I would say, you know, it's been around since 1999. Is that right? So 20th year, you've come in in the last year. When was your first day or how long have you been on the job? It started last summer. I started so almost uh, a year. Yeah. 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 You know, I think- Sat in two days before starting on that excellent session that you led, John, with younger oh, right. journalists. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That was good. I would say like Faith Angle started out as sort of a intended to address the issues that uh, Terry Mattingly captured in the name of his website, which was Get Religion. You know, the point being that many journalists don't get religion. And I think that's been a big part of the purpose is to help journalists get religion. I think I'm curious how you, if you feel like there are ways to drill down on that, make it more specific, expand it, change it. I don't know. Appreciate that. I mean, we certainly want to see a lot of continuity. And, you know, I had the privilege of knowing Mike Cromarty early on. He taught a class in 97 that I took at Covenant College a long time ago and helped me get my first job working for his boss. And I hope what we are doing, I don't know the theology of this exactly, but, you know, makes him smile. And I think in terms of the work itself, it's a real privilege and something I feel really excited to get to be doing. I hope we do it for 10 years, 20 years. We could mess it up. And maybe not, but I hope to hope to be doing it for a while. And it has this amazing aspect of sort of a relational network that's part of it, right? You know, yeah. just sort of the right. getting away and getting to know you and your five kids and Allie and, you know, a number of journalists actually are human beings. And so there's a side of sort of just yeah. getting to know people, which is a, a huge privilege. There's a problem in terms of religion reporting often not being very thick, nuanced, excellent, you know, it could be better. And especially in the mainstream space, not so much small faith-based outlets, but the mainstream space. Plus, there's an opportunity, to, I think, in the digital age to sort of push things down and out. And it's one thing to have 19 journalists together for two and a half days talking about big ideas and enjoying the privilege of space away from New York or D.C. or wherever the people are at Kansas City. Yeah. But it's another thing to take those good ideas that are refreshing and big picture and not solved, but dwelled on for a while and make them accessible to more people. And I think this podcast is part of that effort, putting videos up online is part of that effort, being a part of ways to do follow-up events. We have a journalist who is thinking about doing an event connected to Charleston and race in her city yeah. and working with local journalist outfits and pastors and other ways. You know. So there's just lots of follow-up opportunity to take themes that are talked about and push them down and out. We want to do some things with younger journalists as well, of course, like you were involved in last summer, yeah. Michael Comedy Forum. We actually just got a grant last week, and we have paperwork signed and everything to do a first event in Europe and to do an event in France actually with eight European journalists and eight U.S. journalists right. and some speakers talking about sort of populism and nationalism. So sort of idea there is to take the basic ideas of Faith Angle and make them replicable and scalable yeah. And, yeah. and get that going there for a couple of years and then hand it off. Who knows? You know, so there are just a lot of ways that this could grow. The big idea, of course, is that 
we're a nation of Indians ruled by Swedes. As Peter Berger put it a long time ago, there's a general elite's instinct for trained at Columbia for journalism school. You're not necessarily seeing urban congregations in downtown Milwaukee, but yet that's a big part of the country, right? 25.1% from the last Pew study for evangelicals, 21% for Catholics, 14% for mainline. The country is still a very religious country, and that surely is part of the larger, if not solution, that's part of the larger angle of what is at work in the things that we tell stories about and are writing about and covering day to day. And this project is aiming to hold up that truth in concrete areas with peer journalists who are at the top of their game. And boy, is it a privilege to be around them again and part of these kinds of conversations, John. Well, you'll have to explain the uh, Bergen quote to me off air. <laughs> ah, we can do it on air. You okay. Know, like yeah, India, I have no idea what that means. I mean, so the nation of India, yeah. you know, I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like... 97.3% of the country is religious. Hindus, Muslims, okay. uh, sliver of evangelicals, they're on fire who are, but very, very religious country. And in Sweden, it's 0.0-something percent self-selects as being vibrantly religious when the state surveys yeah. come around. And so you have a very secular country and culture, an impressive country in a whole lot of ways and a lot of history. But if a talented elite Sweden is in charge of running the nation of India, then you have a disconnect there. Let's reconnect that disconnect. It's probably a topic for another thing, another time. But I'm fascinated by the phrase secular. I mean, obviously, there's a whole world of academia and social psychology or whatever phrase you want to put on it that applies to this conversation. But when you really get down to it and meet people at the individual level, gosh, I don't know. I don't think there are – this is probably where we could end up. This is what Ezra Klein and Andrew Sullivan were kind of getting into in Ezra's recent podcast episode, which I highly recommend. You know, one of the best discussions about do all of us have some faith or not? Mm -hmm. I would tend to side with Andrew. I think pretty much everybody has a faith. They all have a spirituality. We just call it different things. And definitely we're moving away from established religions here in the West. But I don't think that means people are not on a journey and searching. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great word and maybe gives us something to chew on for the next podcast. If you're willing to come back over, we can talk about it. Tomorrow. Alter McIntyre. Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was on it was Faith Angle. Yeah. What are you doing tomorrow morning? Saturday morning. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks, John, for coming. Thank you for having me, Josh. This has been an inside look at the 34th Faith Angle Forum in Miami. If you like what you've heard, this is of interest. We'd encourage you to check out our website, faithangle.org, where you can see full audio and video of all three sessions. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd remind you to rate and review the show and spread the word. Tell a friend. Thanks for listening.